Amen. Thank you, Destiny. Well done. Well done on a last-minute sub for your sister. You did good. You did good. Well, this morning we are talking about faithfully engaging the Scripture. And I brought just some of my Bibles this morning. And as we talk about engaging the Scripture So later on, towards the end of the service, we'll all come forward and swear on a stack of Bibles and confess our deepest sins. So prepare your hearts for that right now. (laughs) Just kidding. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, it's the longest psalm in the Bible. It is also the, the longest chapter in any of the books of the Bible. There's 176 verses in Psalm 119. It takes up several pages. And in that psalm, it's it's such a great psalm, it mentions this 172 times. In 176 verses, it mentions this book 172 times. And it talks about how God's word, his law, his precepts, his statutes are good and great. And in fact, the most famous verse in this psalm, you've probably heard before, it's, it's verse 105. It starts like this. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or as this translation says, and a light for my journey. I like that. It is a light for my journey. And, and then later on it says, just down a few verses, it says, teach me your rules. Your laws are my possession forever because they are my heart's joy. I like that. Your rules are my heart's joy. I have decided to keep your statutes forever, every last one. What's so neat about this psalm is it's an acrostic poem, in fact. Uh, The Acrostic means it, the fir- each paragraph starts with the same letter of every line. So the first paragraph, each line starts with the letter A. And then the next paragraph starts with the letter B. And so I'm sure it was written that way so that uh, the Jewish people could memorize this whole psalm. It's harder for us to memorize it because it's not that way in English. But we, we think about that psalm. It is a psalm praising God's word to us. It is my hope that you fall in love with this. It is my hope that you desire to follow every rule. But in order to do that, you have to faithfully engage the scripture. This is our rule of faith. This is who we are. This is important for us. But if, if we're going to really fall in love with this, if we're going to follow this, we have to faithfully engage it. See, too often the way we approach Scripture, I kind of compare it to the way we approach this Bible that we have on our altar. It's, it's in a prominent position. It's kind of prominent here. It's, it's big. It, it, we kind of, we, we think it's sacred. This Bible is never read. I'm not sure who's ever read this Bible except for me when I come up and, and pray over the altar. Sometimes I'll see what verse is here. But it's, it's never read. And too often that's the way we approach the Bible. We, we, we place it maybe in a prominent position. 
but we never read it. We never engage it. We never get it into us. As the prophet said, we don't eat this word. We just place it kind of far off, something to be revered, but not really to be touched or moved. But it is my hope that you fall in love with the Bible. But to do that, we have to faithfully engage the scripture. You see, because this is our canon, our rule of faith. And you can see the picture, it's not that type of canon. That's the canon with two ends. This is a canon with one end. Uh, That type of canon is uh, an instrument of war to wound and kill people. We should not use this to uh, wound and kill people. We do use this, though, to teach truth and convict people. And then the Holy Spirit works within our lives to convict us of our sin and to help us have new life. But we call this the canon our rule of faith. It's like a, a measuring stick. And, and it doesn't change in the sense of, you know, a foot is still 12 inches. A yard is still a yard. And, and so we know what it is constantly. And that's why we call it a canon. It is a rule of faith that is constant. And we have to be faithful in learning to engage the scripture in all that we do. I remember when I first went to seminary. One of uh, my first classes was on the Old Testament. And my professor assigned a reading list that no human could possibly ever read in a semester. I was convinced. But I remember specifically we had two kind of Old Testament introductory books. Uh, and, and one of them was written from kind of the classical, traditional uh, understanding of Scripture, that it was the Word of God, that it was uh, sacred, that it was inspired, and, and it was just your classic uh, text on the Old Testament. The other text, though, was written from a very different perspective. It was written from the perspective that this Word that we have right here is just writing, that the stories are made up, that it is not inspired, that it is just good literature. Now, I was shocked. I had no idea. Now, I know and I knew that there are people, people who are not Christians do not see this as inspired. Absolutely, I get that. But this was written by someone who professed to be a Christian, but who said this is only stories. Now, I had to wrestle with that. It was a well-written book. It was good in the way it was written. And I had to wrestle with the claims that this author was making about that text, that it was not the inspired uh, word of God. And it was good. It was good for me to go through that process. You know, seminary is tough and it can break you down sometimes, most of the time. Uh, But thankfully, they're there to help you as you wrestle with your faith and what is truth and what is not. And so going through that was a good experience for me. And it was the first time I was exposed to the idea that there might be some who call themselves Christians who do not believe this is the word of God. I actually asked myself, why, why bother if you don't believe it's inspired? Unless it's, you're approaching it like good literature, like Shakespeare, and you'd write a book about Shakespeare. But other than that, why bother? Because if we diminish the value of this book, then it diminishes our power 
and our authority. If we diminish the place of scripture in our life, then it diminishes our witness and our power. What's the point? You know, this is the word of God. And if it has authority and power, then it makes all the difference in the world. This is the word of God. And if it has authority and power, then we come together as a church. If it's not, then we come together as a book club. And there's a vast difference between a church and a book club. You know, early on in the life of the Methodist movement, we've had this idea about what this text really is and the importance of this text. You know the founders of the Methodist movement, John and Charles Wesley. And way back in 1739, when the Wesleys were starting this Methodist movement, they weren't trying to start a new church. Remember, they were trying to revive the church because the church had gotten away from this as having any authority. The church had gotten away from a lot of what it was supposed to do and it was just dry and dull and it had no power to transform. And so Wesley began to form these societies and he, he put together these rules for the church. We still have these rules today. They're called the general rules of the church. How many do we have? How many general rules of the church do we have? Oh, y'all are getting there. You're getting there. Eventually, you're all going to know this. We have three general rules in the church, right? Remember what they are? That's the second. Do no harm. Do good. Love God. How did Wesley put it? Attend upon the ordinances of God. So let me read to you what Wesley said. He said this. There's only one condition required of those who desire admission into the church. A desire to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved from their sins. And it is therefore expected of all who continue therein, that's you, that they should evidence their desire of salvation first by doing no harm, by avoiding evil of every kind. Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Don't profane the Sabbath day. Don't get drunk or buy or sell spiritous liquor. You shouldn't own slaves. You shouldn't fight or quarrel, especially another brother or sister in the faith. Uh, you should pay your taxes or uh, you should uh, not charge unlawful interest. You should not have uncharitable or unprofitable conversation. Doing to others as we would not, they should do to us. That's the first thing, do no harm. The second, it said this, to do good. By being in every kind merciful after your power. And as you have the opportunity, doing good of every possible sort to all. He says this, this is how you do good. You take care of those who are poor, those who are naked, those who are in prison, uh, those who are in debt. And he said, second, you take care of their soul by helping them understand this. That's how you do good. It, it's both an action and a teaching and being due diligent in all of that. And third, by attending upon all of the ordinances of God, such as the public worship of God, the ministry of the word, either read, they, oh, they're in the back, either read, or expounded, preached, 
by communion, by family and private prayer, by searching the scriptures. You're called to search the scriptures by fasting or abstinence. These are the rules of the church. From the beginning, the Methodist movement was built on this idea of, of both taking care of social justice and the truth of God here. It is so vital for us to understand this is who we are, that if we're going to have any witness or power, we have to actually understand this and engage this word. So I brought several of my Bibles this morning as I was thinking about this long journey. As, as Psalm 119.105 said, the, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my journey of faith. This is the first Bible when I was in college that I ever read through cover to cover. I had better eyesight then. Yeah. And I've read through it, I don't know how many times, and, and it's interesting to go back and, and see uh, what I've underlined and, and what stuck, struck me uh, back then in college. And, uh, but, but when I started this process, I didn't know what I was doing. But I said, God, help me to read your word, help me to understand it, and help me to live it, right? And I didn't know quite what that meant. And, and so, as many of you do, Genesis is pretty cool. It's pretty easy to read. Exodus, pretty amazing. Moses, parting the Red Sea. Just Leviticus, not so much. You know, in Leviticus, in this Bible, there is nothing underlined. <laughs> not one word. And then Numbers, ooh. Until you get to Numbers 14. What happened in Numbers chapter 14, I was called to ministry. In Numbers chapter 14. And because I was faithfully engaging the scripture, and when God called, I said, I'm afraid. I don't know. I don't want to do this. This is not what I want to do. I'm an accounting major. I'm the one behind the scenes. I don't like to be up here at all. I don't want to do this. And so what did God say? Only it still gets me, even now. Stop, stop. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because, because we will swallow them up. This is small writing. Uh, their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. See, even God, God can speak in numbers. That was the, the first lesson I, I realized. God can speak in numbers. And so I kept reading and kept, and then Psalm 27, I memorized with a bunch of college students. And it's been my life verse since then. And it has guided me in the days that I'm afraid, in the days that I have doubt. And, and I continue, Mark, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbors yourself. And so here, college, I first started reading. And then uh, later on, when I went to seminary, it was in this Bible that I fell in love with the book of Matthew. There's Matthew. It kind of comes out right there. And I fell in love with the genealogy of Matthew in seminary. Because before then, what did I do when I started reading Matthew? Skip chapter one, go to chapter two. Right? But in, in, in seminary, I, I realized 
The genealogy has power. The genealogy can have power. Who knew? I didn't know. I'd never read it with that in mind. I thought it was boring. And so I began to open my mind to what else has power in here that I never knew had power before. And then uh, later on, I got this Bible. And I've read it through uh, multiple times. And it was in this Bible is the reason I am here at First Methodist Canyon in Deuteronomy chapter one, right? Because God can speak in Deuteronomy even today. And there's power in Deuteronomy. See, because I was wrestling with a calling to be a preacher, not just a pastor. And God called me. And so in faithfully engaging his word, again, I was reading through the scriptures. Uh, I felt like God was calling me. And so, you know, you know when you're supposed to do something and you put something off? You ever been there? Just me. Okay. Uh, so uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. I'm reading this text in Starbucks. Imagine that. Normally it takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, going by the way of Mount Seir. But 40 years after, <laughs> God said, you going to go or not? Take 11 days or 40 years. It's your choice. What, what would you like? See, it has power if we will allow it, if we will faithfully engage it. It was in this Bible that I fell in love with Leviticus. Every page in Leviticus is underlined. Every, it's amazing. Wow. But it was because I had to fall in love with the genealogy before I could figure out the, uh, that I would like Leviticus. It was in this Bible given to me by Linda Graybill. It's been my constant companion the, the seven years I've been here. And I can't tell you how many times God has spoken a word to me or a word that has been in here that was right for what I needed for that day. Or as I've studied this as I've preached. It was in this Bible that I fell asleep <laughs> multiple times. That's okay. It was in this Bible that I read the Deuterocanonical books for the first time and fell in love with them as well and began to, to read some other things that I hadn't seen before. Why do I tell you all this? Because we are called as Methodist Christians to faithfully engage the scripture. And sometimes when you do that and you open that book, sometimes I am brought into the very presence of God. Sometimes when I read that book, I get angry. I don't like what it says. Sometimes when I read that book, I'm afraid for myself and for humanity. Sometimes when I read that book, I'm confused. And sometimes when I read that book, I fall asleep. But I keep reading, keep engaging, keep going. It is the discipline of engaging, faithfully engaging the scripture. Why? Because it is my hope. It is my hope that you fall in love with that word. You know, the Methodist Church 
is in a, in a struggle right now about who we are. We're trying to figure out what is this book. Really, that's what we're trying to figure out. What power, what authority does this book have in our lives? Because if it has a diminished authority, then we have no power. If this is just like any other book, then it's just good literature. But if this is the very word of God brought down to us, then it has power for transformation. And that's what I've seen. And that's what I hope. And in fact, the Methodist church has doctrinal standards. Did you know that? Do you know we have doctrinal standards? Some of you probably didn't realize that. We have our general rules, right? But we have our articles of religion, our confession of faith, and the sermons and notes of John Wesley. Those are our doctrinal standards. They're in our book of discipline. They help explain what we believe about this, about God, about all that we do. And there are two doctrinal standards that talk about the scriptures. In fact, it says this, the Holy Scripture, this is Article 5, the Holy Scripture containeth, I love that, containeth, we're going King James, all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein may, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scriptures, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. And then Article 4 of our Confession of Faith. We believe the Holy Bible, Old and New Testaments, reveals the Word of God so far as it is necessary for our salvation. It is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule and guide for our faith and practice. Whatever is not revealed in or established by the Holy Scriptures is not to be made an article of faith, nor is it to be taught as essential to salvation. We have a high regard for Scripture. It gives us power. This book has power if, if we will allow it to empower our life. This book has power if we will allow it to overpower our life. But in order to do that, we have to faithfully engage the scriptures. So, where do you go from here? What's your next step? Are you reading this book? If not, we have a Bible reading plan, by the way, out in the foyer. You can grab one this morning. What are we on? I think James. Tomorrow morning, you can start James chapter 1 and 2 if you're not reading. Just go pick one of these up, follow along, and we'll be reading Psalm 137. It doesn't matter what plan you're on. If you're, if you're new to reading the Bible, I would encourage you, do not start in Leviticus. Start in the New Testament. Start with a gospel, John or Mark or Luke. Start with Philippians, the gospel of joy. Start with James or Hebrews, one of those. But I do, it is my prayer that you fall in love with this word because it is a powerful word. Let us pray. Thank you, O oh God, for the word that you have given us in Christ in the word that you have given us in your scripture. May we be a people of this book. May it have authority over our lives. For we pray in your holy name. Amen.